HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd. This is Greg Blaze, your host. Today we're continuing the discussion about secession planning for cheesemakers. A few weeks ago we had Andy Hatch and Lainey Fondeller talk to us about resources and options for cheesemakers when they're both business owners and at the helm of a business that makes cheese of cultural significance to their local community and even nationally. What happens to that cheese and those employees when the CEO retires? On today's show, I have friend and regular of Cutting the Curd, Deborah Dickerson, as my co-host. How are you today, Deborah? Happy to be here. How are you, Greg? I'm good. I'm good. It's uh, it's wonderful. I took a personal day just to record this show. I'm happy, and I'm really happy to do that. It's, it's fantastic. If I could uh, figure out a way to do that every day and just record this show every day, I'd be doing really well. <laughs> Sounds perfect. <laughs> um, we also have Jennifer Bice of Redwood Hill Farm and Creamery on the line. For those of you who haven't had the wonderful goat cheeses produced at Redwood Hill, they're true pioneers of artisan cheesemaking who've been producing award-winning goat cheeses since the 70s. Um, thanks for coming on, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. Um, I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about your company's history. Um, how did you start producing goat cheese? Well, um, in the mid-1960s, um, I was born in Los Angeles, and my parents moved us to Northern California, Sonoma County, Sebastopol to be exact, because at the time, the pervasive cultural feeling, at least here in California, was this going back to the land idea. And so um, my parents wanted to move our family um, to a rural location where we could raise animals, have a garden, have an orchard. And so that's what they did. Um, and we had all sorts of animals, uh, probably 
at least two to ten of everything from chickens to rabbits to goats to horses. Nice little Noah's um, Ark situation. And that was and everything. <laughs> really, really fun. But the goats um, quickly became our favorites because the goats are really like dogs in their personality. And going from an urban um, lifestyle to a rural environment, uh, we weren't used to not having neighbor kids or skating on sidewalks. So mm-hmm. now we turn towards the animals, and the goats would learn tricks, and we could pretend we were in the circus. And that's really how it started. And really, that's how we founded our business was on the love of the goats. Where did you learn um, to make the cheese? Did you did you travel, um, or did you uh, use the resources around you? When did you turn to cheese making? Well, um, of course, I was a child then, and my parents started um, because there was this new kind of store called health food stores in the '60s, <laughs> and um, they needed raw goat milk. And so, my parents um, we milked the goats before school and. My parents bottled the milk in glass bottles and sold it to these new stores. Um, when uh, my late husband, Stephen Shack and I took the business over from my parents in 1978, uh, that's when we really expanded into all the different products because back in those days, there was a very small percentage of people that would eat goat products. It was really kind of more of a medicinal food. If you were allergic or you had problems, you drank goat milk. But we really wanted to um, turn it into a business uh, because we love the goats and we wanted to have more and more. And so we figured everyone buying the milk would buy the yogurt and buy the cheese. And so then that's when we started expanding into the different uh, products made with goat milk. Nice. What have, um, what have your, been your guiding principles as a cheesemaker over the last few decades? Well, even though we're not artisanal any longer, we have our own farm and um, our cre- we ran out of space at our original creamery when we were farmstead. Uh, we've moved our creamery three miles away, and um, it's a bigger, larger space, which is really nice. But uh, we still do everything in the artisanal method of um, using the milk as it comes from the goat. We don't standardize the milk. We make all of our cheeses still and. Uh, small batches. Um, our French-style rind-ripened cheeses are all turned by hand. Uh, so we, you know, really uh, want to go for the top quality in all the products that we make, and um, we take the extra time to do that. Hey, Greg, if I can just jump in real quick. Love it. You know, I'm not sure that everybody knows that um, Jennifer's contributions have not only been to um, – incredible artisanal uh, French-style goat cheese in the market here in America, but also she's been a leader with um, humane animal certification. Um, Jennifer, can you talk a a little bit about your work uh, with the animals and and what you've done um, along those lines? Sure. Um, As I said, you know, everyone starts a business for a different reason. Ours was because we love goats and we wanted to have a lot of them. Um, And, of course, we always took great care of them, but as we sold our products across the country, not everyone could come visit the farm like people do still today. Um, And so we are third-party certified. Our farm was the first uh, humane certified goat dairy in the U.S. Fantastic. And um, 
Basically, it's a third-party certification, kind of like an organic or a kosher certification would be in that there are certain standards that you must follow, which in loose terms basically relate to uh, natural care or natural activities for the animals. This isn't confined uh, industrial care, um, certain amounts of space outdoors, uh, certain amounts of water, how you um, take care of the animals. And then um, as our, our business has grown and we have all the different products that we make today, we have uh, six other family farms that we purchase milk from, and we've, um, they've always, of course, also raised their animals humanely, but we've gotten all of them certified and so now we can uh, put that label on our products so people realize when they're uh, buying our products, this isn't factory farming, but humane animal farm care. That's fantastic. So you've had a really, you've had a, a great impact on the local community, don't you think? Um, well, we, we try to improve, you know, the life of animals, one animal at a time, and um, we do, I think, have done that with our uh, producers and our dairy farms, and, um, but that said, we, you know, you talked about the values earlier, um, we still are very active in our community in helping both animal youth and um, health and people at risk in um, providing products and uh, work, working with them and community support. That's fantastic. And, you know, I mean, what I know you through is the products. Um, Deborah, you've always been a champion of Redwood Hill products. How did you guys come to meet each other? Oh, it was serendipitous. <laughs> I have always thought that Jennifer is a woman far ahead of her time. And, Absolutely. Um, as I remember it, Jennifer, we were sitting on a bus at ACS, and I think it was 1993, and you, you'll correct me on the year, but you had recently, you, you hadn't been making cheese for, for that long, as I remember, and you won a top award at the American Cheese Society for your camellia. Do you remember that? I do remember um, the bus and the American Cheese Society, but you have a better memory than I do about years. <laughs> I obviously, the win overtook my, uh, my, my, memor- my, my, uh, my ability to be memorable. Um, in any case, I remember it, remember it clearly. And as I remember it, you were absolutely dumbfounded by uh, by this recognition and award and it was um, the camellia for those of uh, of your listeners Greg who don't have the uh, didn't have the pleasure it was a little five ounce bloomy rinded um, gorgeous goat cheese those are fantastic um, farm fed and delicate and absolutely beautifully ripened um, and uh, no one had seen anything like that and it uh, it was it was embraced by the ACS, and the spotlight was on Jennifer, and boom, she was off. <laughs> yeah, those. Oh, thank you. The little crotons. Yeah, I remember. We, we sorry. go back quite a ways, Deborah and I, and have worked together in various ways over the years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. I love the little um, the little crotons that you that you still make. Um, those those were the first. Uh, those were the first Loire River Valley goat cheese style I had ever had here in the United States. Uh, Redwood Hill was really, I think, the first cheese that I had 
from California along with Humboldt Fog. Those were the first things that made it made their way all the way out to me when I was working in the in the mid nineties. And it's it's super mm-hmm. super uh, tasty stuff. You know, what I mean, you've been making good cheese for a long time. Do you still make um, the Gravenstein Gold? I remember that one. Oh, yeah, that was the washed brine cheese that um, we did quite a bit of work with and experimentation with, but um, ultimately we did not come out with it commercially in a big way uh, due to the fact that um, we only had so many different aging rooms. Right. And um, the washed brine cheeses with the bee linens, um, I've seen them in France where they uh, coexist with the penicillin candidum cheeses, but um, I'm not sure what their secret is because in our aging rooms we had the bee linens jumping onto the camellia, and so we ultimately um, didn't come out with that commercially, although a lot of people had it for about a year as we were working on it. Well, you are definitely ahead of your time because now there's – I remember at that time uh, there were very, very few washed rind cheeses that I was purchasing in the United States and um, even less that were made with goat's milk. I don't think I had been able to buy a single one. So you were a little bit ahead of the curve there and uh, – it also uh, taught me about Gravenstein apples, which I guess are uh, very just indigenous to your region out there. Yeah. Well, I love cheese, so um, <laughs> any variety, you know, um, I have to kind of incognito go buy it at the stores because I do buy other people's cheese other than my own. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, the, the Gravenstein Gold was named for Gravenstein apples, which were um, – very, very popular, and we're the apple industry here in Sebastopol um, probably for at least 50 years. Um, of course, with uh, global trade, um, it's cheaper to produce apple juice elsewhere, and so the industry has um, pretty much gone by the wayside. But um, it actually led or spawned another industry because since those um, – orchards were not overtaken by houses. Many of them today have been replaced with vineyards, and so we now have over 300 wineries uh, here in Sonoma County, and primarily from those lands that grew the Gravenstein apples, although there are, there is still one apple processor, and um, kind of the latest thing here in Sonoma County uh, after the wine is now the um, cider varieties of apples sure. and the hard cider production like you see in France that goes so well with cheese. Yeah, definitely. And the U.S. is catching up there. Has the, has the drought in Northern California, has that affected your cheese production at all? Um, well, it hasn't um, specifically uh, in terms of you know, we don't have water. Uh, we've always been into conservation of water. We're in a water short area. But how it has affected most of the dairy farmers in Sonoma County is that um, the cost of feed has risen tremendously because uh, to grow alfalfa or feed for animals, you do need water. And so many um, farmers went out of business and there was less feed being produced. And so consequently, it was more expensive. So it has really increased the costs here. Um, we've gotten quite a lot of rain, um, but, you know, we're not completely out of the drought if it 
keeps raining like this for the next few years, we'll be fine. But if it doesn't, we're still in a drought mode here yeah, and still a conservation behind. mode. And in fact, we're uh, working on uh, roof uh, catchment of rainwater. Um, hopefully this summer we'll be putting in those two installations where we'll capture the rainwater off the roof of two of our uh, large um, dairy goat barns and cool. um, use that water for irrigation on our farm and also animal water. And Jennifer, didn't you um, didn't you plant some uh, some bushes for feed for the goats that were um, drought resistant uh, four or five years ago, long long before this this was a trend? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, of course the the goats are our primary focus and our primary uh, economic engine there at the farm, but. Uh, we've been diversifying our farm for the last several years with um, we do have an apple orchard and we planted an olive orchard but uh, what we've also planted what um, you've mentioned Deborah is a plant called tagasasti and it's also called the lucerne tree because it's very high in protein it's um, originally from New Zealand and um, it grows as a bush and it's very brushy um, and then you uh, cut it and feed it to the goats, uh, which will take up part of their um, hay. Now, goats, uh, many of the listeners may not realize because goats get the bad rap for, oh, they'll eat anything. But in actuality, um, goats are browsers rather than grazers, <laughs> like sure. sheep and cows. Yeah. And so what browsers mean is more like deer, so they're eating tree bark, berry vines, thistles, all the woodier type material sure. rather than grass. And so um, this this plant, Tagasasti, is just perfect for the goats. Um, they eat it with real enthusiasm and just absolutely love it. And then it does have the um, protein similar to the alfalfa hay. And um, we had a one-acre plot as an experiment, uh -huh. and we are this spring adding a second acre to um, relieve some of the outside purchase of um, hay. Definitely. But also, we live here in uh, earthquake country, and it's kind of a um, safety measure as well. So, you know, if we had an earthquake and couldn't um, get feed, we would at least have something on our property that we could be feeding the animals. That's fantastic. That's what you're... Your love for your for your goats and uh, for your farm totally comes through. I really like it. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk about the future of Redwood Hill Farm. Thanks. The dairy farm families of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board are proud to underwrite Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 170 years of quality and craftsmanship. During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. 
To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network. We were just talking to Jennifer Bice of Redwood Hill Farm and Deborah Dickerson, my co-host extraordinaire. For the second half of the show, I wanted to focus on secession planning and specifically, Jennifer, your decision to sell to Switzerland-based Emmy. Uh, I'm sure this was a very difficult decision for you to make, given all we just talked about um, regarding the history of your business, just how involved you are and how rooted you are in the community. Um, I was wondering if you could walk us through your decision-making process what options were out there for you, and why was Emmy the best choice for you? When did you decide that that was what you were going to do? Well, as you can imagine, the decision was big and difficult, and I made it over a long period of time um, because I am in my 60s, and I would like to retire someday <laughs> um, and go back to the farm and uh, garden and be with the animals. And so... Um, for the last several years, I've been um, studying uh, and learning what it means and the different <clears throat> ways to um, sell the business. I mean, I, I didn't want to just, after all these years with my parents starting it, and, you know, I really am kind of highly and emotionally involved. I didn't sure. want to just say, okay, I'm retiring, done, and close everything down. I really Did that cross your mind? products go on and all of the people here at the creamery continue with their jobs sure. and um, so it was long long and involved um, but you know I've, I was approached over the years by different companies and, and different ways and then there's you know venture capitalists there's ESOP plans but what really made sense to me in my research and learning more about this is um, a strategic buyer, which means someone that is in the same industry that is hopefully going to carry on your vision uh, and your products um, the way you would like to. Um, <clears throat> the, um, you know, the natural food industry has really matured and in addition to the cheeses, um, our major product are the culture products. And right. so we really wanted to, um, you know, find somebody that would go on with the business when I'm not here to run it any longer. And one of um, your one of your um, your fellow Californians had already sold to Emmy, correct? You must have had some some positive feedback uh, from the Cypress Grove who did the same thing, right? Right. Um, I went down the path with a couple of buyers, but um, it quickly became apparent with, um, to me with, that Emmy was um, a real viable option for me because of the fact that even today they're owned by a majority cooperative of dairy farmers. Right, they're Swiss dairy farmers. Um, they have the same uh, vision and values and the long-term approach, not short-term profit. And then, as you say, my friend Mary Keene of Cypress Grove, who makes the Humboldt Fog cheeses, um, she had sold to him six years ago, and I tell her she was the trailblazer because when she was deciding, she didn't really have anyone to talk to or ask. And um, when I was... Um, approached by Emmy, of course, I could call her up and say, well, oh, they said this, or oh, what about that? And 
um, still today, almost six years later, she feels like it, you know, is the best decision that she's made. Uh, in addition, I um, went to Switzerland to um, visit their company, their producers. Um, they have both cow and, and goat dairy producers and their um, various uh, cheese and yogurt facilities, including some of which were like me, started by the owner, purchased sure. by Emmy, and still operating there today. And um, I was really impressed with the thoroughness and the efficiency. Um, and because they are a larger company, um, they have the knowledge and the expertise both in running a business and growing a business, but also the dairy expertise. So, you know, if there was an issue or a problem that, oh, how do we do this, um, they would be able to uh, offer expertise and support. That's fantastic. So, um, over time, it just became evident to me that, you know, they were um, really the, the, the company to go with. Um, although, you know, I'm really into the local movement. So it was a little bit hard for me to think, oh, I'm selling my company right. to someone from Switzerland. That's odd. <laughs> what, what was the feedback you got from the cheese community? Deborah, what were your thoughts on, on when, you, when you heard that this was going to go on with Jennifer? Well, Jennifer was kind enough to call me before the general announcement was made, and um, for one of the few times in my life, I was absolutely speechless. Wow. <laughs> I, I, was, <laughs> I was very surprised, but knowing Jennifer as I do, um, the, the second sort of emotion that came up for me, the first one was, no, and the second right. one was, there must be something really good here because Jennifer's instincts I trust, and I know how much the business and the involvement of her family mean to her. Um, and so I became very curious. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the questions that I, that I have, and you know, I've had the, the opportunity to speak to Jennifer, and she's mentioned some of the things here today, but I think that the question that I have is if the, you know, if, if bottom line pro profit, fast term growth is not the goal, you know, what, what is the goal? Because I think, you know, on the other hand, how smart Emmy is to buy two such phenomenal businesses exactly. being Cypress Grove and Redwood Hill Farm. You know, it's like this is, these are the jewels in the crown, some of the jewels in the crown in the American artisan cheese movement. And, and what, you know, what does that mean to them, right? My, my reaction is, do they appreciate it? You know, do they know how wonderful this business is? And what, you know, what is it that makes them attracted to it? And well, my, well, my thing is, and when I hear things like this is so we we have to go outside the the borders of our own country to find people that understand the fundamental principles of how you, Jennifer, someone who's obviously very attached to all your animals, the community, every you know every inch and aspect of your farm for the shrubbery that you're planting you know in, in per, for earthquake prevention and everything we there's no secession for you in the, in the borders of the United States. I think that that's kind of weird. I, 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 that, that you would have to go all the way to Switzerland to find someone to, to continue on what you do. Well, I think part of it is um, what you really want 
for your business. Um, and what I wanted was it to continue on with the same values. Um, for instance, we really rank sustainability high. Our farm is 100% solar powered in our creamery. Uh, we have over two acres of roof space uh, with over 2,500 panels uh, providing 85% solar power. Well, yes, it, that is beneficial in the long run, but it's an issue that shows that um, we're looking at really the good for the environment, the people, the planet. And to me, that was the strong area um in Emmy's um, benefit is that they're looking at the long term. And I think to your point, Deborah, they really do appreciate uh, because they are dairy farmers at heart. They do appreciate the quality. They do appreciate um, how an uh, animals are cared for and the products are made. And um, good succession plans are really hard to come up with because you know, my company, it seems big to me, but, you know, it's really a small company in the scheme of um, companies. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm still surprised that Emmy is such that uh, they recognize the value of small artisan companies and are willing, even as a large publicly traded company, are willing and happy to, um, you know, join with us. The other thing that was so um, uh, advantageous for me, for Emmy, as the right choice is that um, they don't really have corporate headquarters here in the U.S. They're of the mindset, well, you built the company to where it is today keep running it, keep going on, and um, that's why part of our sale was I signed an employment contract, um, so I will be here for several years running the company just like I did a year ago, and in fact, I sometimes forget I even sold the company because I still come and <laughs> sure. work and do the same thing, Right. although for the first time in 45 years, I do have a boss. Um, it must be weird. he, you know comes by infrequently, and I send him a monthly report, but it's still something in a mindset, you know, when you have a boss. Sure. It, 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 when you used to be in at the top of the top of the ladder there, and they put one more step up above you, that's odd. Um, uh, I think the, just the, the other thing that I'll, I'll just put in here really quickly is do. it makes me think about, you know, what... Greg, you mentioned that there 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 wasn't anything here in the United States that that fit Jennifer's needs, you know, for the future of the business, and it makes me, you know, think about the capital necessary to um, to purchase a business like Redwood Hill, and that that doesn't exist with the same values here in the United States. What do we need to do to create that? You know, where where will that energy come from? You know, Jennifer, do you think that there's opportunities? You know with the the guilds or with ACS, do you think that there should be a movement that would be able to accommodate the needs of other small artisan cheesemakers as they reach, you know, their 50s and 60s and want to make a transition? Well, it is true that um, good succession plans are going to be needed because, you know, 
the artisan cheese pioneers, you know, are getting older and, um, you know, we want those businesses to continue on, but are they big enough to, you know, join with, um, you know, corporate companies in America? Um, That's a real question. Um, The other thing is that I think the um, important point is that even though we are owned by Emmy, a, a Swiss company, everything is staying here in the U.S., in Sonoma County. We're keeping our creamery here. All of our close to 80 employees will continue on here. Uh, we'll still be supporting the community organizations that we have in the past. And so even though the actual ownership is not a U.S. company, it really benefits the community and the employees and the people that are here. Um, So, you know, I think that is what is an important factor to consider as well. That is exactly my my point in all of this. When when I talked to, to Andy Hatch, when we did a, our first episode on secession planning, he talked about mm-hmm. was it was it more important was the was the cheesemaker more important or the cheese more important? You know, because if you bought if you bought a, some wine in France from a, from a certain vineyard, you didn't know who the vineyard who the vintner was necessarily, but the wine the vineyard per- perpetuated itself, and uh, and I think that that's what you're saying. What's important to you is that the thing that you created is sustainable and uh, when i look at um the company that you sold to so they are a cooperative of dairy farmers i i maybe i'm i'm ignorant but we don't have a lot of that here and i and i see a lot of cheesemakers now making very good cheese uh, a lot of youngsters and and people who aren't so young and i do i just i just wonder when we will as a country or as an industry set up some sort of secession for people who want all of that to continue because otherwise it just sort of exists in a vacuum and and it has the potential to be t- be taken away or to go away in my opinion you know so I think this is. I think that this is the first wave, though, right? If you look at people like Jennifer with Redwood Hill and Mary Keene with Cypress, you know they were leaders in the artisan cheese industry, and so it's sort of the first, the first wave of this, you know, happening. Um, so, as usual, Jennifer, you are uh, you are, are blazing trail. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> well, well, the way I look at it too is. Um, I'm going to be going back full circle because um, even though I'll be here for several years, um, I did keep the farm and the animals, and I live at the farm. My uh, windows overlook the uh, goat pasture, and so I'll be retiring back to the farm and doing gardening and raising the goats, and we're actually uh, officially a milk producer for Redwood Hill Farm now, so we um, sell the milk from our goats as we do uh, purchase from our other producers. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I'll be able to stay in touch with it, but I'll have the freedom because really deep down I'm a goat farmer and want to um, do more gardening and farm work. That's awesome. Well, I hope that they I hope that they see your vision through. You know, I really do. <laughs> 
I have a question, and that is, do you think Jennifer will see the day that Redwood Hill is is sold in stores in Bern, uh, in Switzerland, or um, that it will be exported as par- a part of MA's vision? Um, I kind of don't really think so, because, um, you know, the cost of shipping dairy products that need refrigeration from start to finish uh, doesn't really make a lot of economic sense. And in addition, they do have um, goat producers in their own country of Switzerland. So um, when I was there last summer, I went to a um, two different goat dairies who were making cheese and making products that were, you know, quite delicious. So um, I don't think that's really their their plan um, to start shipping products, you know, halfway around the world um, because um, they can have the same products, you know, there in Switzerland. Um, although I do think that them having um, different um, companies in different countries is um, kind of a, a fail-safe because obviously if the economics are down in one country, they're probably not in another. So it, it's a way to, um, you know, have that um, be more beneficial for the company that not everything is in a in one country. And if you think about it, if you've ever looked at the map, I mean, Switzerland is a tiny country. Uh, I think it has only 8 million people, and um, it's truly beautiful if you ever get a chance to go there. You know, I watched Heidi as a kid on on (laughs) the movie, and you get there and look out at the um, snow-covered mountains and the pristine environment, and I felt like I had, you know, landed in Heidi land. (laughs) Well... Jennifer and Deborah, I want to thank you both for coming on. Um, I learned that goats are browsers today. I really <laughs> like that. Um, and, uh, and for anybody who hasn't had any of the Redwood Hill products, um, you got to check them out. The Terra is fantastic. Um, thanks, gals, and uh, stay tuned next week for another episode of uh, Cutting the Curd. Ciao. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.